Chapter One of the English Language. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The English Language by Logan Pearsall Smith. Chapter One, Part One. The Origins of the English Language. Among the many living forms of human speech, and those countless others which have arisen and perished in the past, the English language, which is now spread over so large a portion of the world, is as humble and obscure in its origin as any other. It is, of course, in no sense native to England. It was brought thither by the German tribes who conquered the island in the 5th and 6th centuries, and its nearest relations are to be found among the humble dialects of a few barren islands on the German coast. When our Anglo-Saxon ancestors came first to ravage Britain and finally to settle there, they found the island inhabited by a people weaker indeed, but infinitely more civilised than themselves. For several centuries the Celts in England had enjoyed the benefits of Roman government, and shared in the civilization of the Roman Empire. They lived in walled cities, worshipped in Christian churches, and spoke to a certain extent, at least, the Latin language. And it is possible, if this Teutonic invasion had never happened, that the inhabitants of England would be now speaking a language descended from Latin, like French or Spanish or Italian. It is true that English has become almost a half-sister to these romance languages, as they are called, and a large part of its vocabulary is derived from Latin sources. But this is not in any way due to the Roman conquest of Britain, but to later causes. In whatever parts of Britain the Teutonic tribes settled, the Roman civilization and the Roman language perished and we find at first a purely Germanic race, a group of related tribes speaking dialects of what was substantially the same language, the language which is the parent of our present English speech. This Anglo-Saxon, or as it is now preferably called Old English language, belonged to the great Teutonic family of speech, which in its turn was separated into three main families, East Germanic, now extinct, Scandinavian or Old Norse, from which Icelandic, Danish and Swedish are descended, and West Germanic, from which are derived the two great branches of High and Low German. High German has become the modern literary German, while Low German has split up into a number of different languages, Frisian, Dutch and Flemish. It is to the last of these groups that English belongs, and its nearest relatives are the Frisian dialect, Dutch and Flemish. But the Teutonic tongues themselves form one branch of another great family, the Aryan or Indo-European, which is spread from India in the east, to Ireland in the West, and includes Sanskrit, Persian, Greek, Latin, Celtic, and several other languages. The grammatical structure of English and German, 
and a large element of their vocabularies proves their relationship to these other tongues, though in the course of their wanderings from their primitive home, forms were changed or dropped, and pronunciation of some of the vowels and consonants shifted. Many old words perished, and many new ones were acquired. The study of the relationships between these various languages forms the subject of the science of comparative philology, a science almost entirely based in its turn on what is called phonology, the study of changes in sound and the elaborate laws by which they are governed. It is only indeed since the discovery of these laws that the science of language or linguistics has become possible, and it is on the careful and accurate study of sound changes that is founded the modern historical conception of English, its relationship to other languages, and its development from the early speech of our Anglo-Saxon ancestors. This early speech was, as we have seen, a Teutonic or German language. Although our modern English has been derived from it by a regular process of change, it was in its character more like modern Dutch or modern German. Its vocabulary was what is now called a pure one, containing few foreign words, and its grammar was even more complicated than that of modern German. It retained the elaborate system of genders. Its nouns were masculine, feminine or neuter. They had five cases and various declensions, and the adjectives, as in German, agreed with the noun and were declined with them. And in the conjugation of the verbs, there were twice as many forms as in modern English. It was therefore, like Latin and Greek and German, an inflected language, while in modern English inflections have almost disappeared, and other means of expressing grammatical relations have been devised. As this loss of inflections is one of the main characteristics of modern English and illustrates a tendency of language which has been carried further in English than in any other form of European speech, it will be well, perhaps, to say a few more words about it. To the older philologists, when the change of language from the earliest tongues down to the present day was at last unfolded before their eyes, the long and uninterrupted history of grammatical losses which they found, the perishing of one nice distinction after another, seemed to them an uninterrupted process of ruin and degeneration. But this view of the history of language, a continuous advance, namely in richness and accuracy of expression, accompanied and produced by a continual process of decay, is too paradoxical to be maintained and it is coming to be realised more and more that the disappearance of grammatical forms is not a loss but a gain, and that they have been superseded by a means of expression which renders them more or less superfluous, and is itself vastly more expressive and convenient. This means of expression is called analysis, and consists in stating the relations once expressed by verbal terminations by separate words of an abstract character, by prepositions for the cases of nouns, and by auxiliaries for the tenses of the verbs. 
If we look in a Latin grammar, we shall find, for instance, that to translate one Latin word, fuissem, four words, I should have been, are used in English. That is to say, the different notions combined by inflection in one Latin word are taken out from the conglomerate whole by analysis and are expressed, each of them, by a separate word. The development of analysis in language, the habit of using a separate word for the expression of each separate element in a complex notion, is one that we can trace throughout the whole history of language. In primitive forms of speech, whole complexes of thought and feeling are expressed in single terms. I said it to him is one word. I said it to her another. My head is a single term. His head a different one. My head is, of course, to me an enormously different thing from his head, and it is an immense advance in the clearness of thought when I analyse the thought of my head into its different parts, one of which is peculiar to me and named mine, and the other that of the head, which I share with other human beings. Simplicity of language is, in fact, like other kinds of simplicity, a product of high civilization, not a primitive condition, and the advance of analysis, the creation of words expressing abstract relations, is one of the most remarkable triumphs of the human intellect. This development of analysis had already, of course, reached a high point in languages like Greek, Latin and Anglo-Saxon, but it has been carried even further in modern forms of speech and reaches, in Europe at least, its furthest limit in modern English. We see it in the first place in the greatly increased use of prepositions, of and to and for and by, and still more in the use of the auxiliary verbs, have and do and shall and will and be, by means of which we are now able to express almost every shade of thought which was formerly rendered by changes in the form of the verb. Along with this creation of new grammatical machinery, modern English is remarkable for the way in which other superfluous forms and unnecessary terminations have been discarded. In the first place, we must note the loss in English of grammatical gender. The absence of this in English is more extraordinary than we always realise, for this irrational distinction, which corresponds to no distinction of thought, and capriciously attributes sex to sexless objects, and often the wrong gender to living beings, is yet found as a survival of barbarism and a useless burden to the memory in all the other well-known languages of Europe. With the loss of gender, we have also discarded the agreement of adjectives, of possessive pronouns and the article with their nouns. An Englishman can say, for instance, my wife and children, while the Frenchman must repeat the possessive pronoun as in ma femme et mes enfants. If we regard it as the triumph of culture to fit means perfectly to ends, 
and to do the most with the greatest economy of means, we must consider this discarding of the superfluous as a great gain in modern English. Another great characteristic of modern English, as of other modern languages, is the use of word order as a means of grammatical expression. If in an English sentence such as the wolf ate the lamb, we transpose the positions of the nouns, we entirely change the meaning of the sentence. The subject and object are not denoted by any terminations to the words, as they would be in Greek or Latin or in modern German, but by their position before or after the verb. This is one of the last developments of speech, a means of expression unknown to the rich and beautiful languages of antiquity. This tendency to a fixed word order was more or less established in early English, as it is in modern German, in spite of the richness of inflections in these languages, and it is a debatable point whether the decay of inflections made it necessary, or its establishment made the inflections superfluous, and so brought about their decay. Probably each acted on the other. As the inflections faded, a fixed word order became more important, and the establishment of this order caused the inflections to be more and more forgotten. How is it, then, that these amazing changes, this loss of genders, this extraordinary simplification, have happened in our English speech? For five hundred years after the invasion of England, the language of our Anglo-Saxon ancestors remained, as far as we can judge, practically unchanged. Then a transformation began, and in three or four centuries, what is practically a new language somewhat suddenly appears. In the first place, as an answer to this question, is the fact that simplification is the law of development in all languages, and has influenced more or less all European forms of speech. At the time that English changed, the other languages of Europe were changing too. That this process was carried further and proceeded faster in England than elsewhere is not, however, due to any special enlightenment or advance of civilization in the English nation. For as a matter of fact, education, culture and enlightenment, although they help progress in other ways, are intensely conservative in matters of speech, and while for their own purposes the educated classes have to connive at changes in vocabulary, any grammatical advance is opposed by them with all the powers they possess. We know how intensely repugnant to them are any proposals for the reform of our absurd and illogical system of spelling, and we can imagine the outcry that would arise should anyone dare to suggest the slightest and most advantageous simplification in English grammar. In our plurals these and those, for instance, we retain, as Dr. Sweet has pointed out, two quite useless and illogical survivals of the old concord of attribute words with their nouns. For if we do not change our adjectives or possessive pronouns for the plural, and say, his hat and his hats, why should we change this and that into these and those in the same positions? And yet the whole force of education and culture 
would furiously oppose the dropping of these superfluous words, if indeed they could be brought to consider any such proposal. As a matter of fact, the progress in English is due not to the increase of education, but to its practical disappearance among those who used the national speech. It is the result not of national prosperity, but of two national disasters, the Danish invasion and the Norman conquest. End of chapter 1, part 1